Well, good evening, everyone. Good evening. If you would get your Bibles out, and as you can see on the screen behind me, open it up to the book of Romans. This evening is the return to our uh, preaching theme for 2021 as we just work chapter by chapter, expositorily through the book of Romans. want to have a better understanding of this great book. We know lots of verses here and there. and In fact, I'm going to begin with one of those well-known verses uh, this evening. But we want to understand Romans all together in the great unit of thought that Paul is presenting in this great book of the Bible. Romans 3 is where that's going to be from tonight. It's great to see everybody tonight. We have guests with us tonight. appreciate so much the fact that you've uh, joined us this evening. I hope you've had a good afternoon with the overcast skies and the rain kind of drizzling on and off all afternoon. I hope maybe you got to enjoy it in some way, maybe just taking a good Sunday afternoon nap. Today would have been a good day for one of those naps. But whatever you did, I'm glad that you uh, chose to close your day and end the activities of this day by being together and being in this assembly tonight as we uh, worship God and as we think about uh, things that pertain to, to His work the things that are the matters, of, the matters of the soul. In Romans, the third chapter, I want to begin by reading the, probably the most famous verse, in, uh, at least in this chapter. In Romans chapter 3, this is verse 23, where Paul says there, Romans 3 and in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is one of the most well-known verses in Romans, if not the entire New Testament. We quote that verse often. We teach that verse to young people. It's a good first memory verse. It's kind of short and it's easy to remember. We make reference to that passage in all kinds of different contexts and discussions. But I sometimes wonder, I sometimes wonder if our familiarity with that verse makes us a little bit, well, a little bit too comfortable with what that verse is saying. Because the truth of the matter is, that verse provides the answer to this question. Is God angry with you? That's a sobering question. Is God angry with you? That is, if we're comfortable with Romans 3.23, that discomforts us. Thinking about the idea of God being angry at us. What we'd like to think, especially this evening, is we'd like to think, well... Of course not, God's not angry with me. I mean, where am I? I'm at church. I'm here in this place. I'm involved in this worship assembly, singing to God, praying to God. We're honoring God and doing the kinds of things that would please God. Surely God is not angry with me. And you know what? The brethren in the church at Rome when they received this epistle known as the letter to the Romans, they would have thought that exact same thing as they received this epistle from Paul and as they are prepared to have that read in their hearing and to begin to see the things that Paul wants to say to them, they would have said, yes, God is pleased with me. I am sure that, yes, God is angry with some people out in the world, people who are wicked, people who are far away from Him, people who deny that He even exists. God's surely angry with them, but but with me? God would never be angry with me. Paul comes to the third chapter because he does not want us to nurture that delusion. For two chapters now, Paul has devoted the first couple of chapters to the book of Romans to say emphatically that all... And by all, he means all. All have sinned. All have sinned. All are indicted under the wrath of God. In chapter 1, Paul says some things that would have certainly found a home in the minds of the Gentile brethren. As he says some things about idolatry and pagan sorts of things, those Gentile brethren, they would have felt the sting of that and realized, that's talking to me. 
In chapter 2, because he doesn't want to leave anybody out, he says some things very pointedly to the Jewish brethren in that audience. They would have felt the sting of the things that he says there. And so the answer to this question of is God angry with me, the answer in the book of Romans is absolutely clear. Chapter 1 makes it clear, chapter 2 makes it clear, and chapter 3 ties all of that together to say, yes, yes, God is angry with us. Now, maybe right here before we even go any further this evening, I do need to just kind of just make sure that we're all talking the same language as the Bible. When the Bible talks about God's anger and God's wrath, we need to be very clear that we don't think about God's anger in terms of some kind of a childish temper tantrum. Sometimes you see depictions of God in in movies and in literature and in art and kind of almost makes it seem like God is just this big, angry, fussy, cosmic giant. And every now and then He just blows a gasket and just starts just smoting people randomly. That's not an accurate depiction of God's anger. God's anger is not like our anger, where we sometimes are uncontrolled in our anger. God's anger is not an uncontrolled emotion. Rather, it is the reaction of a holy God whenever people flout His laws and act as if He does not exist or as if His laws do not even matter. God is angry, let's be clear, at sin. His anger is what we often call righteous indignation. We sometimes get a taste of that and we get a sense of what that is whenever we see criminals who are obviously guilty get off the hook. Maybe there was some kind of a loophole. Maybe they misspelt his name on the warrant and now that guy gets to walk free. Or the attorney, the defense attorney, found some kind of a loophole in the judicial system and now this guy's able to walk scot-free even though we know he did that wrong. How do we feel when we see that? We are angry. We are angry. Justice is being deprived. This morning as we were observing the Lord's Supper, Brother Cody read those verses from Mark chapter 12, the parable of the tenants. And he asked us, how do we feel when we read that? When we see those tenants mistreating the servants? And then how do we feel when the tenants mistreat the Son who represents Jesus? How do we feel about that? We feel anger. And rightly so. It is a righteous Anger, being angry at wrong and wrongdoing, that is the kind of anger that Paul is describing here in the letter to the Romans. And that means then that God is angry with all of us because Romans 3 verse 23 says that all of us have sinned. One writer noted, and this little quote just stuck out to me, he said, it would be quite wrong of God not to be angry with me. Think about that for a second. It would. It would be wrong of God if He wasn't angry at me because I know the things that I have done against Him and against His will. And until we grasp that reality, then we're never going to fully appreciate the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How it is able to save us from the wrath of God and that is precisely where Paul is headed in this third chapter. This chapter conveys to us that before we can really hear the good news of the gospel, we need to hear the bad news about ourselves. And Romans 3 clinches the argument that Paul's been building for the past two chapters to say that we stand before God as sinners. We are unrighteous. That's bad news. But here's a little glimmer of hope. Before we get done with Romans chapter 3... Paul is going to start talking about good news. 
He's going to build this bad news stuff a little bit more, but he is going to start to give us a taste of that good news, and I'm eager to get there. And so let's just read a little bit here. In Romans chapter 3, begin with me in verse 1. And in verse 1, what advantage, Paul says, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful, some might ask? Does their faithlessness nullify nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul begins here in this third chapter by identifying some specific manifestations of God's anger. First of all, Paul says that God is angry with those who have been given some advantages spiritually, but who did not use those advantages to serve and to know God better. Paul actually starts chapter 3 by asking a couple of questions, kind of rhetorical questions, but really these are questions that he is anticipating that the Roman audience is going to be asking. In light of the stuff he just got done saying in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Paul kind of just beats them to the punch and he asks and throws out these rhetorical questions that he's sure that they are going to ask. And the question that they are wondering, no doubt, is, well, what good is it to be a Jew? I mean, all this stuff you said to us Jews in chapter 2, Paul, kind of makes it seem like, like there really isn't even any point to us being Jews. I mean, is this some kind of a sick joke that God has been playing upon the Jewish people for the past 1,500 years or so? What's been the point of us learning the law and going to the synagogue regularly and offering our sacrifices time and time again? I mean, the way you talk, Paul, we're not in any better position than the Gentiles are. I can't believe that we've wasted so much time trying to be good Jews. Maybe to kind of update that and give it a kind of a 21st century flavor. The readers of this passage today might read that and say, you know, if we're all sinners, well, then what's the point? What's the point in us bothering with all this Christian life stuff? If we're all sinners and God's wrath is poured out on all people, then why are we bothering going to church and reading the Bible and living according to God's will? Well, as is usually the case, Paul's answers to those questions, they might actually surprise us. We might be expected to hear Paul say, hey, you're right, there is no advantage to being a Jew. Being a Jew is absolutely pointless and there's nothing about that. But that's not what Paul says. And furthermore, Paul does not say that circumcision, ah, that's a total waste and there's no no point in that either. That's not what Paul says. Instead, Paul says, verse 2, when they ask the question, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Paul says, much in every way. The New Living Translation, I like the way it renders it. Yes, there are great benefits to being a Jew. We might be wondering, well, what kind of benefits would there have been to being a Jew? Well, Paul actually identifies one of them there. He points out there about being entrusted with the oracles of God. That word entrusted is a word that indicates stewardship. The Jews were stewards of God's Word. That's who His law, that Old Testament law, that's who that had been given to. It had been given to the Israelite nation, to the Jews. That meant things, that carried with it lots of advantages, that meant things that they understood about grace, they understood about forgiveness, they understood some things about sin, they understood some things about obedience to the will of God. That means as well they understood things about the Messiah, how He was going to come and be the Savior of the world. All of that 
would have been a huge advantage. It would have given a Jew kind of a big head start over any Gentile or anybody else in the world. The problem, though, is that not all Jews were good stewards of the oracles of God that they had been given. Paul says in verse 3 that some of them were unfaithful. They didn't use the advantages that they had been given to know God better or to serve Him better or to help others to know and to serve Him better. Does this mean, though, that somehow God has failed because they failed? This is kind of like when you think about you see a child that's acting unruly and acting like a child should not be acting. And we immediately think, well, if that child's acting bad, that must mean he's got a bad mom or got a bad dad. And that's kind of what they're asking here. Is the faithlessness of God's people, does that somehow mean that God Himself is unfaithful? I love Paul's answer, verse 4. Absolutely not. By no means, Paul says. Paul is absolutely certain that God is justified in bringing judgment against those individuals who knew so much but did so little. He quotes from Psalm the 51st chapter and in verse 4, talking about how God is justified in that way. Furthermore, God's judgment against sin, His anger expressed towards sin, it also demonstrates that God is incredibly righteous and God is incredibly holy. Once again, Paul anticipates that his audience is going to have some questions. His audience is going to have some reactions to the things that he's saying here. And so, verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says there, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? In the parenthetical thought, I speak in a human way. Paul says, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some slanderously charge us with saying, Paul says their condemnation is just. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Paul says that these people are probably thinking in their mind right now, all right, you're saying we're sinners, we're condemned under God, but you know what? If my sins happen to give everybody else a chance to see how great God is, how loving God is, how holy God is, how righteous God is, then well, that, then isn't that a good thing? You know, maybe God should take it easy on us. I mean, come on. What we're doing is just highlighting and making Him just seem so much bigger and greater and more wonderful. Makes people appreciate His grace even more. Paul responds to that once again, verse 6. By no means, absolutely not. Sinners are just incredibly good at coming up with all kinds of excuses to try and justify themselves. Oh, I'll do this, and maybe somehow there'll be some positive that'll come out of that, even though this over here is terribly wicked and awful. Paul says, stop it. Stop it with that kind of nonsense. Stop kidding yourself. You can't do evil so that good can come. Evil doesn't do any good at all. He says, you Jews, you failed. You failed the Lord. You were entrusted with the oracles of God and you failed Him incredibly. Can I just say right here, we sort of made this comment in the class Wednesday night, but I'm going to say it here again. What does that say to us today, Christians? We have been entrusted with something very, very special, haven't we? We have been entrusted with the gospel, the message, the soul-saving message of salvation. Paul talks in another passage about how the gospel treasure is placed in earthen vessels. That's us. What are we doing with that? 
Do we just carry that around just for, just for us? I'm just kind of only worried about me. And as long as I'm you know, being saved, all right, it's important. your own salvation is important. But what are we doing to share that with others? That's part of being a good steward. Spreading that around. That is God's expectation of us. If we think somehow that because of the fact that we know God's Word forward and backward, or the fact that we have flawless doctrine, and maybe we even do intensive studies like this about the book of Romans, that somehow as a result of that we can all just sit up a little bit straighter, and we can all just feel incredibly good about ourselves, and we're so special, we need to think again. This passage comes along to tell us that God's wrath, God's wrath is expressed toward all people. It's bad news. Don't get too comfortable here. It's bad news. He's angry with all sinners and all are sinners. In fact, Paul continues to underscore that point in verse 9. Verse 9, Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. Notice this. Notice how Paul just rips off a whole bunch of Old Testament passages, stitches them all together here and stacks them one on top of another. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, there are places in Romans, and there are places in other parts of Paul's writings, where we read it and we kind of we furrow our brow and we wonder, yeah... I don't really know what he's talking about there. It's scratching my head. I can't quite figure that out. This is not one of those places. This is not rocket science here. We know exactly what Paul means when he teaches here all men, all women, all people have sinned. We are sinners. Paul says all have turned aside and together they have all become worthless. Can I draw your attention to that word, worthless? That is a term that was used in the Old Testament to describe, get this, soured milk. You stop and think about soured milk in your refrigerator. Think about the last time that you went to the fridge and pulled out a carton of milk and you went to take a swig of that and you caught a whiff of it and whoa! Thankfully you didn't get any of it in your mouth. The smell was enough to repel you away. Let me ask you, what, 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 what do you do with that carton of milk? Just put it back in the refrigerator and maybe it'll be good later. Save that for a rainy day. What do you do with that? You throw it out. Why? Because it's good for nothing. It's not good for anything anymore. It has lost its original purpose. It is no longer able to fulfill the purpose that that milk was there for. And in many ways, when Paul says, the things that we have done against God makes us worthless, that's exactly what he is saying that our original purpose, it's been ruined. And what is our original purpose? Our original purpose is to magnify and glorify God in everything that we do. And when we sin, that messes the whole thing up. When we honor ourselves and we're all about doing what pleases me, that completely sours us, it spoils us, it does 
It makes us worthless. Now somebody probably, as they read those verses there, those quotations from the Psalms and other places, where it talks about, you know, no one does good, none is righteous, no, not one. And we kind of come away thinking, well, is that saying that nobody has ever done anything good ever? Of course not. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul means that no one does good all of the time. That's what he's talking about here. No one is righteous all of the time. No one is consistent about that 100% of the time. In fact, let me take that back. Only one person was good and righteous and consistent all of the time. And that, of course, was Jesus. But for the rest of us, we're not that. People do perform acts of kindness and charity and good deeds from time to time, but on the whole, worldwide, there is a failure to constantly honor and glorify God as He deserves. None lives righteously, and as a result, the whole world is accountable unto God. In fact, that's verse 19. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Can I draw your attention to that expression that's used there in verse 19? May your mouth be stopped. That's actually legal terminology. That's legal jargon. We've noticed some legal jargon already in the book of Romans, and this is another one of those places. In Paul's day and time, whenever a defendant was finished making his defense in court, he then would put his hand over his mouth, and that would then signify to the judge and whoever else was there, it would signify, I don't have anything else to say. I've said my piece. This would be like, in our day and time, it would be like someone saying, the defense rests. Well, in cases where the defendant was obviously guilty, I mean, everybody knew this guy was guilty. He knew that he was guilty. All the people there observing this knew that he was guilty. It was undeniable. He was guilty of the crime that he would commit it. Everybody knew that there was going to be no justification. There's nothing that he could say. The court would then say, stop his mouth. Stop his mouth. He is guilty. We all know it. He knows it. Shut him up. Everybody knows it. And Paul uses that language. That, that, that puts a harsh image in our mind. Paul uses that language to indicate to us that all of us, ultimately, when we stand before God, that's what we would have to do. We would have to stand with our hands over our mouth. We are, we are without a defense. We are obviously guilty. Is there anybody here this evening that is going to be so bold as to say, I've never sinned. Raise your hand right now. I'll be surprised. Nobody would say that. We understand. There's nothing we can say. There's no excuse. There's no justification we can give to God. We are all lawbreakers. That's what Paul talks about there in verse 20. You know, if God puts up a sign that says, all the people who broke my law, I want you to line up over here to my left. I'm going to have to stand in that line. I don't want to stand in that line. I'd rather stand in the other line, and that is the line that says, uh, I'd never do anything wrong, but, but I know I have broke His law. I know I have to stand in that line. Maybe what I'd really like is I'd like for there a line to be uh, that says, all right, I broke God's law some of the time, but, but I also did some good things as well. Maybe a, a third option in the middle, and maybe I could stand in that line. Nope. No, there's no line like that. There's no line for people who sin and break God's law, but 
but they go to church every now and then, or their parents were Christians, or they read their Bible every day. No. If God's putting together a list of people who have broke His law, my name is on that list, and I'm standing in that line. Paul says in verse 9, Paul says that that means that we are all under sin. I want to really draw your attention to that expression. All are under sin. For Paul, he pictures sin as not just something that we do, but he pictures it as this monster that overtakes us. It overtakes our lives. In fact, the more that we sin, what happens? Well, the more we just give ourselves over to that sin. You ever notice that in your life? The more you give in to a temptation, the easier it is to keep on giving in to that temptation until eventually you become controlled by that sin. That's how Paul is depicting the idea of sin here. It is a monster that rules us and controls us. And on our own, we cannot free ourselves from it. We're not going to be able to be the hero here and pull out a sword and attack the monster. And, oh, look, I saved myself. No. We are under sin's control and on our own, we are powerless against it. What that means then is that means that we desperately need what Paul talks about there at the end of verse 20 is that we need to be justified. We talked about the word justified a little bit back in chapter 2. And that also is a legal metaphor. In Paul's world, a judge justified at the end of the trial, after all the evidence has been presented, after all the arguments on both sides have been made, the judge will then declare one party in that case to be right. You are justified to be declared not guilty. You are in the right. And that is what justification is all about. To be justified means you don't have to be penalized. You will not be punished. You are not guilty. And that is... That is what we all want, isn't it? That's what we want spiritually. I want to be declared not guilty. Of course, we cannot expect God to treat us that way because, well, we, we know that we're not right. We know that we are guilty. We know that we deserve punishment. I know the sins that I have committed. I can't say to the Lord, Lord, look at my sterling record here. It's just pristine. Look at it, Lord. You should be so impressed with me. I'm never going to be able to say that. I'm a sinner. And when the Bible talks about all people, I'm in that category. Now, if Romans 3 ended right here, in fact, if the whole epistle of Romans just ended right there, it would be a really grim epistle. It would. It would end with this teaser about being justified, but we'd have no concept or no idea of how to be justified. Well, this is where the remainder of Romans 3 takes a dramatic shift. And now the tone turns a little more upbeat and a little bit more positive. And so verse 21. Verse 21, Paul says, But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just 
and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want that justification stuff. I want to be declared right. I want to be declared not guilty. But, but, but how is that possible? How, how, how can that possibly ever be? You know, up to this point, Paul's all, already just kind of talked about all kinds of dead-end roads. You know, being a Jew, that doesn't work. Being circumcised, does that make you right with God? No, that doesn't work either. Doing all the works of the law as best as you possibly can? No, that doesn't do it either. You can't obtain righteousness and justification by, by your heritage or your tradition or by law-keeping. Paul says that one can be declared righteous only, first of all, only apart from the law. Paul reveals that the way to be declared right with God is not by trying to do perfect law-keeping, doing everything exactly right. Again, only one person has ever been able to do that. And his name was Jesus. And in fact, in many ways, that's very good news. That we can be justified even apart from the law because again, none of us are going to be able to do that. The good news here is that we'll never be justified on doing everything precisely right because we won't do everything precisely right. If justification is meted out because of perfection, none of us are ever going to have it. Instead, what Paul says is he says that justification is found by trusting in Jesus. Yes, we're all standing in the line with the lawbreakers. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of God's glory. But the good news is Jesus is there to save us out of that line. He is there to redeem us from that grouping. And this is important. Jesus is ready to save anyone. Everyone. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter what your background is. Paul says there is no distinction. The color of your skin the ethnicity of your heritage and your background, where you work, how much education you have, how much money you make, who you're married to, who your mama was, who your daddy was, none of that matters. Forgiveness is available to everyone who has fallen short of the glory of God. We can be saved, not by what we've done, but we can be saved despite what we've done. Now I tell you, already, you just read those verses... And things look considerably brighter, don't they? It was a dark, stormy picture Paul had painted up until verse 20. And now all of a sudden, beginning in verse 21, things are beginning to clear up considerably. We thrill at the opportunity to obtain forgiveness. God is doing something amazing. God is doing something wonderful, Paul says. But of course, there might be some who, even upon hearing about this, there might be some who are kind of even a little bit offended by this. Why? Because, well... This just doesn't seem very fair. This doesn't seem very just. Thinking about God, God doing all of this, I'm not sure that God is still being just and being, uh, meeting out justice as He should. You stop and think about it. What would we think of a judge who just goes around and just when people are brought up to Him, criminals, people who have been charged with various crimes, and when they come up before Him, just not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, just not guilty. I mean, everybody... What would we think of a judge like that? Wouldn't think very much of him at all. We'd think that judge needs to be taken off the bench. He is not a very good judge. He is unjust. And so as a result, lots of people get to thinking, this kind of sounds like what God's doing. God's forgiving lawbreakers. That seems like God is being unjust. In fact, once again, we start thinking about our own lives and the sins that we have committed. 
I love that forgiveness stuff. It sounds wonderful. I want some of that, but, but I know that I don't deserve it. I've heard people say that kind of thing before. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I, I can't accept the forgiveness of God. Paul's been adamant that we're all sinners. And if God's wrath is firmly set against sin, then that means that, means that I deserve His anger and His wrath. But what Paul insists in this wonderful section of Scripture in Romans chapter 3 is that God can forgive sinners and He can still remain just. And the key in all of that to making sure that God maintains His justice is Jesus. Jesus is the ingredient. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, verse 23, we are just, verse 24, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is where we need to expand our vocabulary once again. Focus in on that word propitiation. That's one of Paul's big words. And that's not a word that we use real regularly. In fact, the chances that you use the word propitiation in the past week or maybe in the past year in a non-religious context is probably zero. You probably have not done that. Propitiation is about the idea of placating God's wrath or placating anyone's wrath. It's to ease someone else's anger and their frustration toward us. And this is not a completely foreign concept to us. Think about how this, this happens even in our human relationships and interactions. If I as a husband, if I forget my wife's birthday, or I forget our anniversary, or some other kind of special occasion where I should be doing something to honor her and to demonstrate how much I love her, and I forget to do that, she then is rightly going to be angry at me. She's going to have wrath for me. Well, what can I do about that? Well, I can propitiate that by getting her a dozen roses or by taking her out to a really nice restaurant or going on a date and having the kids being taken care of by somebody else and treating her with honor and showing her that she's special. We propitiate all of the time. In fact, the idea of propitiation can even be found in the Old Testament. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into the most holy place and he would sprinkle the blood, the blood of atonement on the lid of the ark in order to propitiate God's wrath. That sacrifice then turned away God's anger, God's wrath for sin. Paul speaks explicitly and firmly here in Romans about God's wrath toward sin. And it is expressed toward all sinners who are not forgiven. God's anger has not gone away. But it has been turned away. Jesus averts God's wrath. Jesus is able to turn away the wrath of God. God's anger is propitiated by the sacrifice of Jesus. And that is an amazing concept to think about. It is turned away. And as Jesus bled and as He died upon the cross, we've already thought about that today in observing the Lord's Supper. But one of the things that we need to think about when we observe that every first day of the week is how God's anger against us was propitiated. And Jesus is the propitiation that we desperately needed. And it is for these reasons that God then is able to be just and the justifier. He's able to be just and merciful at the same time. You know, God wants to punish sin. He has to punish sin. But God also wants to forgive sinners. Well, how's He able to do both of those things? Jesus. The sacrifice of Jesus made that possible. 
And as a result, nobody's going to be able to ever say to God, God, you know what, I think you just treat sin too lightly. You just don't treat sin all that seriously. Are you kidding me? God sent His Son, gave up the best of heaven, sacrificed and allowed His Son to be killed in order to propitiate for our sins. That's an amazing concept to think about. Only the Lord could conceptualize such a brilliant plan. The demands of holiness and righteousness are satisfied at the cross. Mercy and grace meet at the same place where Jesus suffered and bled and died. Where does all that then leave us? Where are we at now in light of all of that? Well, Paul then wraps all that up in verse 27. In verse 27, I'm reading here from the New Living Translation in verse 27. Paul says, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No. No, because our acquittal, our justification, is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. Paul says here that nobody is ever going to be able to to say to God or to anybody else, Hey, look at me. I saved myself. Look at all the good things that I did in order to be saved and to have my sins washed away. Nobody's ever going to be able to say, Yeah, I was a terrible sinner. I was deep in the pit of sin. But you know what? I just pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. And I climbed up out of that pit and now here I am, standing on level ground. I'm in a good spot because of me. Paul says nobody's going to be able to say that. Nobody's going to be able to brag or boast about themselves. We can't do that. We can't boast in what we did. This isn't our story. This is Jesus' story. We're not the hero. Jesus is the hero. Verse 28, what Paul says is we have to trust in God. Verse 28, he says, So we are made right with God through faith and not through obedience to the law. We're not able to save ourselves because we're not able to keep His law perfectly. We're not able to say, God, God, I'm a perfect law keeper. I did it all right. We'll have to have faith and trust in the Lord that His forgiveness is granted to us when we come to Him. Verse 29 then, Paul says, After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not also the God of the Gentiles? Of course He is. There is only one God and He makes people right with Himself only by faith whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Now, we certainly can think about that passage for us today and to think about how in Christ Jesus all people get placed on equal footing. But let's remember the context of the book of Romans and what's going on there. You've got a church that is divided. You've got a church that is fussing and fighting. You've got Jews pitted against Gentiles and it works in both directions there. Paul says, in Christ Jesus, there's no place for that because we're all on level playing ground. We're all standing at the foot of the cross. All of us are the same in Christ. We are brothers. We are sisters. There's not a God for the Jews and then a God for the Gentiles and we're going to worship Him separately and then I don't know how that's going to work. No! No! One God for all. And we are all saved by that same God. I think maybe in some ways Paul says these things to kind of cut off at the past any of the sniping that maybe would have happened between Jewish brethren and Gentile brethren. You can imagine Gentiles as they read this maybe looking over to the Jewish counterparts and saying, you know what, you guys really messed up with the Messiah. I mean, you just, you blew it. You guys did not do the right thing. You just totally missed it on justification and propitiation. It was in the Bible all along. 
And you can kind of maybe imagine that the Jewish brethren would retort back to the Gentiles and say, well, you know what? Y'all are just a bunch of lousy pagan idolaters. That's, that's your heritage. That's your history. Paul says, don't do that. God is the God of all. He puts both groups together to say there's only one way to be justified. That's faith in Christ. Jew, Gentile, black, white, orange, brown, male, female. It doesn't matter what you are. You can be one in Christ. And then finally, verse 31, Paul says something about the law once again. He says, well then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? You know, made the point that we can't obey the law perfectly. So we just take the Old Testament and just cut it up and just dispense with it and throw it away? No, of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. Paul says that there is still value to the law. In fact, that's something he's going to bear out in some of the remaining chapters of the book of Romans. The law was designed to show us that we are sinners. The law was designed to show our great need for a Savior, to acknowledge that we cannot be saved by perfect law keeping. That doesn't mean that we don't appreciate the law, and it doesn't mean that the law is just completely useless and void. We need to acknowledge that we can't be saved by the law, but we also need to acknowledge that the law was designed to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul's going to say some stuff about Old Testament sorts of things in chapter 4. And so, by the end of this chapter, Paul has leveled all the ground at the foot of the cross. Because at the foot of the cross, everyone is equal. We all stand there and we all watch the Son of God die for our sins. Can you imagine maybe the profound effect that that portrait, that image in their minds would have had upon the brothers and sisters at Rome. To this church that was bickering and divided and factious, Paul says, listen guys, you're all alike. You're all sinners. And if you want to be saved, it's not going to be by doing great works. If you are saved, it's going to be by trusting in Jesus and the atoning sacrifice that He made for our sins. And when everybody fixes their eyes and their gaze upon Jesus then that means we're not going to be looking horizontally to all the things that we fuss about and argue about and create all kinds of bickering about. Those things will finally evaporate and we'll recognize that they really aren't important in the grand scheme of things. We'll be focused on what really matters. We'll be focused on the Savior. We'll be focused on our King. I do very much believe that this chapter bears out that we need to come to terms with the bad news Otherwise, the good news doesn't make any kind of an impression upon us. And so as we extend the invitation of Jesus Christ, I need to just ask, do you understand the bad news that Romans 3 articulates? Do you really get it? Do you understand your place before God, separate and apart from Christ? You're a sinner. You're lost. You stand to be condemned. Furthermore, do you appreciate this good news? Do you understand what God has done? The incredible links that God has went to, moved heaven and earth to send His Son Jesus to save you from your sins. And then furthermore, do you realize how important it is for you to trust and then obey God, come and receive that free gift and be saved? If there's somebody here this evening who has never taken those all-important steps to access the grace and mercy and salvation that is found in Christ, 
We are extending that invitation to you right now. We are encouraging you to do that. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song that's designed to encourage you and to get you to think about where you stand in your relationship with God. And if we can help somebody this evening who has never confessed their faith in Christ, made the decision to put sin out of their life and to begin serving God, and then be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins, then tonight we are ready to assist you in doing just that so that you can become a Christian. And it is because of this great plan that we've been reading about in Romans 3 that that is all possible. Can we help somebody to do that tonight? Brother or sister, if you began that walk but you've not been serving the Lord as you ought to, this is the time to change. This is the time to rethink where you stand in your position. Don't go back and put that label of sinner upon yourself and just leave it there. Change that. A forgiven sinner. Ask God for His forgiveness. Let us pray with you. Let us encourage you so that you can serve the Lord in a better way as well. Whatever your need may be, we encourage you to come and beckon you to do so as we sing this song. Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.